First Peter chapter three will be our our text for today, the first seven verses. I do not always, but I do on occasion like to take the opportunity that's offered to us on Mother's Day to consider a text that is directed specifically toward Christian women. And this text is one that is appropriate for our day in general, the world in which we live, especially in our Western world. In light of the the emphasis and the dominance of of feminism and the, the teaching of egalitarianism, in other words, that men and women are the same in every respect except physical, and they should be treated the same, to be regarded the same across the board. Well, we find that Scripture does not tend to be politically correct. Scripture tends to be theologically correct. And so as we look at this text today, we were reminded that it is from God Himself. It is recorded within this context of Scriptures itself that there are distinctions of roles within the context of marriage. And also because we see this in the Scriptures, we see the debate that we have today, the discussions that are being offered today, the arguments that are being presented today, this is not something that's new. It was being addressed even in the time of, of the New Testament writings, particularly by Paul and also by Peter here in our text. So let's begin reading here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become your children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. And husbands, yours is verse 7. That's coming on Father's Day. I suppose that there is something of a risk in dealing with this particular text today. I mean, after all, isn't this Mother's Day? And I could be accused, I suppose, of ignoring the opportunity that was afforded to to encourage our women and to encourage our mothers rather than, quote, put them in their place. <laughs> but to be very frank with you, I'm I'm thankful to God for what I sense is there is no such spirit among our women here. I'm thankful to God when I see the families of our church for what I see as God 
honoring marriages. Men who take their role as husbands and fathers seriously. Women who take their roles as wives and mothers seriously. We're not perfect. I don't see a perfect marriage. I don't see a perfect father, husband. I don't see a perfect mother, wife. But I see people in in our congregation here whose heart is to honor God in their marriage. And I do not take that lightly as your pastor. It is a precious gift to me as a pastor to see that and encouragement. Well, the reality is, as we consider this issue, that the Scripture does clearly teach that there are distinctions of roles within the context of the marriage. There are distinctions of roles for husbands and for wives. If you look at Paul's teaching, which will not take the time to turn there. In fact, we did address this issue, I think, a couple of Mother's Day, a couple of years ago. According to Paul's teaching, it goes all the way back to God's created order. That's what he appeals to. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, 13, he makes reference there that it was Adam who was created first. And with that created order, that there's something to be learned from that. That there is a sense of leadership and a, of authority that comes with Adam being created before Eve. But we're also reminded here from the text that we consider here in Peter's letter... That there is a power and there is a beauty of living God's way. That the biblical picture that's given to us of, of wives living in submission to their husbands. That it is not to be regarded as some type of a costly, demeaning role for women. It's not that at all. In fact, I think it's the, it's the highest honor because it simply puts things in their proper place, their proper perspective. It's simply God's order, isn't it? It's not the way that, that we would do it. In fact, that we see that all around is how, how men would do it because of the pressures that have been applied over the last 50 years or so. We see what would happen. But it is still God's way. It is still God's order. And we choose to to honor His word, honor His teaching regarding this. And so we're keeping that in mind, that it's God who has ordained the distinct roles that we speak of within the context of the family. And yes, it is going to be directed today primarily to that of, of wives, but then again, remind that it's God who has established this order. And that the encouragement for godly women is to be, as, as Peter says, when he describes the women of old, those who hope in God. To set your hope in Him. And how a heart that, has, that is set upon hoping in God, how that is to be demonstrated, how it should be expressed in one's everyday life. And so I want to give to you three, three directives, three directives of ways that a heart that hopes in God is to demonstrate that in the world. First of all, there is, we should adopt a God-pleasing motivation. Adopt a God-pleasing 
motivation. Peter's instruction to wives here affirms to us what is a central truth of Scripture. And that is that life is to be lived before the presence with a conscious awareness of God. God is the ultimate factor in all of life. He is the ultimate consideration in everything that we do. And so Peter reminds us of that in in this exhortation here. And he gives this instruction that we began in verse 3 of being submissive to your own husbands. He gives this instruction to the wives here with two contexts to consider. And these two contexts will serve to us as, as guiding principles to rightly understand and to rightly apply what he tells us here. First of all, he, he compels us to consider this instruction of wives being submissive to your husbands to consider it in the context of God's salvation. Consider it in the context of God's salvation, which he begins in the earlier part of the letter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. He gives descriptives here of, of this great salvation that they, as the people of God, have been called into. He refers to it in verse 4 as an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled, and it will not fade away. He speaks in verse 7 of our faith that is proven. A proven faith that is more precious than gold and how that it culminates with praise and glory and honor at Jesus' return. Verse 7, the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This salvation that he speaks of in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1. He says that it produces inexpressible joy. Is that what comes to your mind when you think of God's salvation for you? I have joy that I can't give expression to. And that's what what Peter says here as he describes it in verse 8 and 9 that though you have not seen him you love him and though you do not see him now but believe in him you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible full of glory and it's that which secures verse 9 eternal salvation obtaining as, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. It's quite a salvation, isn't it? It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It will not fade away. More precious than gold. It culminates with praise and glory and honor. When Christ returns, it produces inexpressible joy within those who have received it. It is a salvation that has been anticipated by the prophets. Verse 12. It was revealed to them, speaking here of the prophets, revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. A message that was anticipated by the prophets, a message that was fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, a message that found that was 
revealed to them with understanding by the Spirit of God. In other words, what they are experiencing, the day in which they live, the days of which Christ walked among them, and Christ came and He, and he lived and He died and He was raised and he was and he was ascended into heaven, that that was the culmination of God's redemptive history. What a day to live, to see this point, to see this taking place with Christ coming. So what's the appropriate response to that? What's the response of the heart to think about a salvation like this. A genuine salvation that is it's historical, it's real, it's not the imagination of men, it's not based upon philosophy, it's based upon the revelation of God. And you've a part in it. How should you respond? Well, verses 15 and 16 of chapter 1, he answers that. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves and all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So the appropriate response is holiness of life. And it is certainly one of the themes, if not a major theme, of this letter that Peter has written. So, in the context of God's salvation, with the appeal that is made based upon salvation for a holiness of life, the instructions to wives here is to be understand, understood as this is an outworking of holy living within the context of your marriage. Be holy as God is holy. In particular, wives, in chapter 3, verse 1, this is your calling to holiness. In the same way, wives, be submissive. That's holy living. So in the context of God's salvation, it's called to holiness of life that's given to the women here. But the second context to consider is in the context of his teaching here on submission to authority. It starts back in chapter 2, verse 13, which I read to you just a few moments ago. There in chapter 2, verse 13, Submit yourselves to the Lord's, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. And then he gives instruction in verse 18. Servants be submissive, submissive to your masters with all respect. And then on the heels of that, he comes down to chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way. In the same way. You wives, be submissive to your own husband. So what does he mean by that expression in the same way? What way is he talking about? And a way that is consistent with what he has already said regarding submission. First of all, it is to be done in verse 13. For the Lord's sake, submit yourself for the Lord's sake. See, the common denominator 
for all manner of submission, whether it be to kings, authorities, civic authorities, national authorities, whether it be within the context of a society as he addresses here in verses 18 regarding the servants and their masters, the common denominator for all forms of submission is if it is to be honoring to God, it is to be done for the Lord's sake. So wives, when they come to to this instruction here in chapter 3, verse 1, to be submissive to your own husbands in the same way, it's with this in mind, I do this for the Lord's sake. This is God's instruction. Oh, it's not because He needs it, it's because we need it. It is to honor Him where one willingly assumes his place under God-ordained authority for the sake of the gospel. Wives included. Then he just reminds us that, verse 15, such is the will of God. I understand that speaking here, he's speaking directly to submission to the human institutions institutions of, of government leadership, of kings and of governors. But the application we made throughout this chapter, this is the will of God. I mean, how many conferences could we have? And what kind of a crowd could we bring? Say, we're going to study about knowing and doing the will of God. We'll sign up the masses. They'll come. Oh, I want to be in on that. How many of you struggle? I like to know the will of God for me. I'm so glad that at times it's just so crystal clear. Here it is. It's the will of God for us to submit to human institutions as kings and of governors and as our, our modern day government may be. It's the will of God that servants be submissive to their masters. It's the will of God, wives, to be submissive to your husbands. It's the will of God. So we do it for the Lord's sake. That's in the same way that the wives are called to submit to their husbands. But also, to submit in the light of the context here, to submit, to submit in the face of suffering. Verses 18 and following. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. And then he gives a little bit more detail, doesn't he? Not only to those who are good and gentle. I mean, that's easy, isn't it? Relatively speaking. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. I've got a reasonable master. Submit. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. Pleases God that we endure, that we Obey God's word even in the midst of suffering as modeled by Christ. It's where he goes with it, isn't it? Verse 21. I mean, it's not like you're the only one that's ever suffered, folks. Well, if you've been called for this purpose, 
since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. See, there is a measure in which the life of Christ was an example to be followed. And one aspect of that exemplary life is that He suffered for righteousness' sake. And He calls upon His people to do the same. So as to submit in face of suffering as modeled by Christ. Verses 21 and following of that chapter. In other words, rightness of action is not determined by accompanying hardship. I don't determine whether or not something is good or right because what is this going to cost me? It's the wrong question. Is it right based upon the Word of God? Is the question to be added, asked. The principle of submission is to be honored even if that principle is unappreciated or abused by the one to whom you submit. I'm not talking about physical abuse of a wife. I'm talking about the principle of, of submission is abused by the one in authority. Understand this. That this we're not, God's not giving here license and leeway for, for husbands to act like dictators in their home. It's not a matter of, I'm the husband here, so I'm the authority here. We can do things my way here, and your way is of no concern. That's not the way it is. But there is to be a sense of leadership that the husband assumes and that the wife can, can gracefully and graciously submit to that. It's not a matter of me it's asserting my will with no regard to my wife or my family. That's utter folly. And that is abuse of the scriptural principles that are, that are given there. Because what does the scripture say? What did Paul say about husbands? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And what's the example of that? And he gave himself, not what he demanded, not what he could get for himself. He gave himself. So here's the measure of a godly husband. It's not what he can accomplish by, by demanding that such things be true within the context of his home. It is how much he is willing to give himself for the sake of his wife. And a wife who has a husband like that will have a much easier case to submit. But the principle of submission is to be honored, even if that principle is unappreciated or abused. And evidently the abuse that was concerned of, of Peter's day was that these, these Christian women, that they would, they would consider themselves to being completely just run over or disregarded by their husbands if they did not in some way assert themselves. Got to do something here. And Peter said, that's not the answer. Even if that principle of your submission is unappreciated, it is abused, it's misunderstood by your husband, you still honor the principle. It is a biblical, God-given principle. And you do what Jesus did in verse 23. 2.23 He kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. There's someone watching who will judge righteously in every act of righteousness that we do, even though it may be unappreciated and unrecognized in the eyes of men, God sees. And there will be, there will be a day of vindication of the righteous. That will come. 
when the righteous will be known. Your righteousness will be revealed. So do as Jesus did to keep entrusting himself to God. So two, Peter's two guiding principles here for wives. To honor God in their roles is the appropriate response of a holy life in light of God's salvation. This is holy living. Ladies, if you want to live a holy life, here it is. Be submissive to your husbands. But it's also the recognition and the honoring of God-ordained authority. God's the one who sets this in order, isn't He? God is the one who inspired Peter to give this instruction here. In the context of God is the one who, who commands, who calls us that we... We submit to human institutions of kings and governors. He is the one who commands that masters, I mean, servants be submissive to their masters. He is the one that gives instruction here and commands that wives be in submission to their husbands. So, wives, simply this. Adopt, adopt a God-pleasing motivation. My desire is to please God, to do His will. Here it is. This is the will of God. And it's so contrary to the modern day mentality of our Western world. It's an idea, it's a principle that is attacked by the egalitarian mindset of our culture. And sadly attacked even within the context of the church. It's interesting how there was pretty much a unanimous understanding of such Scripture text to this until the concept of feminism penetrated the church and the idea of egalitarianism that women, men are equal in all things in all ways. It's amazing then, once that begins to enter into the, enter to the church, how all of a sudden that uh, the Scriptures are interpreted differently. It didn't used to be a debate. You didn't used to have a debate between within the context of evangelicalism. You didn't used to have a debate between complementarian view and egalitarian view. You didn't used to have that. And now, the complementarian view, which I hold to, which we preach and proclaim here, as we've adopted the Danvers statement as our statement, by the way, of our, our role upon, of our understanding of the role of women in ministering the church, We're the minority view, folks. (laughs) And so, as I said earlier, I I hold great thankfulness unto God in my heart for what I witness among families here and wives. But you're not going to be encouraged, women, by the world to honor God in this. You've got to assert, you've got to exert, you've got to do, you've got to protect yourself. You've got to make something of yourself. To adopt a life to a God-pleasing motivation with this life purpose. To live for the pleasure of God as directed in His Word. The world will not understand, but the heart is set. I want to please God. Let that be your motivation. Second, to adorn a gracious manner. To adorn a gracious manner. Peter's instruction in chapter 3, verse 1, regarding the wives' role of submission, he, first of all, he gives this universal principle. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. 
There's the principle. It's a universal principle to be applied across the board. It is one that is consistent throughout all the Scripture. And it's clarified further, though, in this context, for those who may not be in the best of marriage situations. So he goes on to say, Be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them, in case some of you, are married to someone who is disobedient to the Word. So that if any of them are disobedient to the Word, in other words, they're unconverted, they may be won without a Word by the behavior of their wives. So are Christian wives of unbelieving men exempt from this directive? The answer is no. So I'm... A believer, my husband's not a believer, I get my instructions from God. He doesn't know anything about God, so I get my directions from him, not my husband. And Peter says, that's not true. You'd be submissive to your husband, even if he is someone who is disobedient to the Lord. He's one who, by his life, he demonstrates he's unconverted, whatever his profession may be. And likely, here they just married husbands who are just pagans. The women have been converted, the husbands weren't. Said you still submit. Then he goes on to say, you know, because you can look at this one and say, man, this is this is hard. <laughs> I realize it can be done that way, but he imposes upon the wives the greater duty, doesn't he? any of them are disobedient to the word, that they may be one without a word. Now, make sure we understand this. People are converted by hearing the word. This is not saying here, well, you can be a, a testimony by your life and never say anything. That's not what it's saying here. It's by the preaching of the word, the proclamation of the gospel that God saves. The understanding here is that he has seen or heard enough of the word of the gospel that he sees the life of his wife. Verse 2, they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Some of them are converted not by the wives' unceasing nagging, pushing, trying to accomplish something, but by a life of godliness. So the greater duty is imposed upon the wives here because of the potential, the potential that a husband would come to Christ because of the consistency with what he hears in the gospel message, with what he sees in the heart of it, in the life of his wife. Peter's description here regarding how such women, all godly women, should live. He says in verse 2, he speaks of that they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. In other words, they see this. The emphasis here, this is seen by men. This is undeniable. They look at your life and they see a moral purity in all of life coming from a holy fear of God. That's what the idea of respectful there is. It's a holy fear of God. They see that you're not out 
flaunting or trying to promote yourself in in an ungodly way toward other men. See the chastity of life. Not flaunting one's sexuality by one's actions or by their appearance. There's a virtue that is noticeable here, this chaste and respectful behavior. It's a virtue that is noticeable even to the unconverted, even if they don't fully appreciate it. They notice it. With the potential result that the spouse would come to faith in Christ. Here it is. The power of a godly life. The power of a godly life. More powerful than words. There is some truth, isn't there? Actions speak louder than words. Again, this is not saying act in such a way and never speak of Christ. That's not what it's saying. There must be the, there must be the plan of the gospel seed. But once that's done, or perhaps even when this is seen first, then there's a receptivity to hear and to question of what's going on in the life. But he also goes on in verse 4, he speaks about the gentle and the quiet spirit. Let this be your dormer, the hidden person of the heart, which is the imperishable quality, quality of a gentle and a quiet spirit. That which is regarded, he goes on to say in verse 4, which is precious in the sight of God. Ah, that others see the focus. This is what men see. They see this chaste and respectful behavior. Listen to this. God sees this. God sees this. God sees this gentle or meek and quiet spirit. And here he sets it in contrast with the external adornment, which would be the dominant of their day, which hasn't changed a lot nowadays either, has it? Verse 3, let your adornment must not be merely external. Braiding of the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. Listen, it's okay to do those things, but this isn't what it's all about. And certainly you don't want to be consumed with these things. It's okay to braid your hair. And some are saying that it's not. Well, you get a problem at the end of the verse there. Start talking about wearing clothes. Well, it's all okay. But when the focus of the heart becomes how one looks in their appearance, their hair, their jewelry, the apparel that they have on, it may attract the human eye, but it is no, of no value to the soul or spirit. And that which consumes the thoughts and the resources of the worldly, of those who have their hearts and their minds set upon this world, they give themselves over to these things. Don't be that way. This isn't what you're called to do. Listen, I'm a guy, and the first thing I'd rather see is some woman that looks beautiful. Okay? I'm not saying go around looking frumpy and dumpy. I'm not saying that. And only that honors God either. The balance is you don't do either one that's to call attention to yourself. You don't go in your dress in such a way that people look at you and think, Oh my, what kind of an outfit is this? What kind of culture do these people come from? You don't do that. But nor do you go to the other extreme where you're so focused upon your physical appearance that people can't help but notice. I'll be honest, folks. The, the dress of the Amish, Mennonite culture, it's not honoring to God. What does it do? It draws attention to itself. Not to God. See, Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. But the woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. 
Peter describes it here in verse back in our text here. He describes it as the, verse 4, the hidden person of the heart, that which is unseen by the physical eyes. It's beyond the outward appearance of the individual. It's deeper than that. It's who the person really is. And he speaks of it as Verse 4, with the, it's in, these are imperishable qualities. Imperishable qualities. They are of eternal value. Which is going to be most likely in heaven, folks? Gentleness, quietness, loud arrogance, self-advancing. You tell me. So these are eternal qualities. <clears throat> One writer says this about this text. He says, When a heathen husband sees that by conversion his wife is changed from vanity, love of display, and other feminine vices to the true beauty of a new spirit, he must surely be drawn to a religion that is able to produce such wonders of grace. See, there's a power in that, isn't there? It's quite a responsibility thrust upon women. Folks, this isn't for the weak of heart. <laughs> this isn't for the women who can't make it in the world, so they've got to find a way to you know, get under somebody's authority and make the most of it. They can't be these leaders and all these movers and shakers of society. Folks, this isn't easy. This demands grace. And if the application made here is to those who are married to unbelieving husbands, how much more is it applicable to the wives of of Christian and godly, at least want to be godly husbands. So to adorn within, ladies, within your spirit and your actions, a manner that demonstrates to the world that there's a work of grace that's taken place in your heart. God's done something within you. And to remember that the lines of distinction ought to be increasingly clear between women of the world and the women of the church. Are you with me on that? That the lines ought to be increasingly clear between women of the world and women of the church who are God's people. Don't be sucked into this world's mindset of flaunting our face, our figure, or the latest fashion. And that's it. There's the world's mindset. You know, the beautiful face, the perfect figure, the latest fashions. But to pursue that which is precious to God. Adorn a gracious manner. Let this be your adornment, ladies. Chaste and respectful behavior, gentle or meek and a quiet spirit. These are precious to God. And thirdly, to admire a godly model. 
I mean, the temptation is, I could imagine, as a man might imagine these things, is to do and says, well, nobody lives like this. I mean, even among believers, even in the church. I mean, go to church anywhere. Pick a church here in town. Pick one of the big ones because you got a lot of diversity there. Go to one of the big churches. And what do you see? People don't live like this. I mean, people are in the church and they're, they're dressing, they're calling attention to themselves, they're flaunting everything, they're, they're facing the figures and the fashions. It's all there. Well, the reality, the reality is, sad to say, that there's a lot of truth in that statement. No one does live like this. And sad to say, increasingly among the church. But Peter takes a different route. He appeals to the example of godly women of the past, verses 5 and 6 there. He says, This is the way, for in the former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. What's he saying? How? With this gentle and quiet spirit. It's how they adorn themselves. Holy women who hoped in God. Now, isn't that quite a characterization? Ladies, how many of you have your goal in life? I want to be known as a holy woman who hopes in God. Is that your goal? There is where the former times the holy women also hoped in God. Women, holy, not sinless, not perfect. Holy in the sense that they were set apart for God and they knew it. They were called by God, called out by God, whose heart was set on things eternal. They were looking for satisfaction in God's grace. Their holiness of life and hope and God was exemplified by the submissive spirit. Verse 6, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. There's a specific example, isn't it? Sarah, she obeyed Abraham. Let's just face it. God says, come on, Abraham, you're going. Where's the word to Sarah here? Maybe we need to have a family meeting on this. Come on. Sarah comes. Sarah follows. And then the, the verse there, what it refers to, it says that uh, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Look with me very quickly in Genesis chapter 18, verse 12. Genesis chapter 18, back up verse 11. This is when they had an angelic visitation and Sarah was, Abraham was told that Sarah was going to have a child and Sarah is listening. Verse 11, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced years. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, my Lord, being old also. Who's she speaking about? Abraham. 
But notice this. This isn't given to us in the context of here's a woman who wants to do something, and her husband wants to do something different, says, all right, you're the Lord. That's not what it is. This is just everyday conversation. After I become old, so I have pleasure in my Lord being old also. She's just speaking about her husband and the words that just come out of her mouth. My Lord. I don't require, incidentally, that Beth refer to me that, that way. <laughs> I hope she doesn't. <laughs> I might be kind of frightened. But it is, it's, it's an understanding of, of her place under someone else, and she just lived that way. I mean, it just came out. Talking about her husband, my Lord. You know, I saw some wives talking about their husband, oh, my Lord, right? But that's not what she's doing here. <laughs> my Lord, my husband. She honors the one that God has placed over her. It's not a singular incident, but it is an example of her life pattern. And Peter encourages the wives here. Just as Sarah obeyed in verse 6, call him Lord, and you have become her children. You're like Sarah. You know, it's very common that the, the believers are called the children of Abraham, right? But he exalts the women here and exalts Sarah. He says, listen, ladies, this is one of the holy women who hoped in God. You are a descendant of her. You are a holy woman. You are one whose heart should be set and whose heart is hoping in God. The mother of those who do, he says, what is right without being frightened by any fear. Rather than being guided in life by fear, such an attitude will cost one so dearly. I know fear is a strong motivation, isn't it, women? How many of you women struggle with fear? Don't have to raise your hand. Not to nod your head either. <laughs> it's an issue. But not to make our decisions based upon a faithless fear. To, to have a fear that guides our decisions that is devoid of any consideration of God. Hope in God, do as Christ Himself did. Keep entrusting yourself to Him who judges righteously. Don't think, well, if I choose to live in a way that honors God, what in the world is going to happen to me? The answer to that is, I don't know in the short term, but in the long term, I know that you will be vindicated when your righteousness will shine forth. So Peter just takes examples from the Old Testament. He sets these before the wives. <laughs> As opposed to, let's just look at the world around us and let's kind of blend in here, right? No. And so women, the exhortation that by instruction and example he gives to, to the ladies there and for us today. To admire godly models. Let these be the ones that you would in a measure emulate. 
Are the examples of your life, the examples that, that you want to follow, are they godly? Are they holy women who are praised by God? You know, this isn't what comes over the television. It's what's, this isn't what's produced in Hollywood. It's not what's there. And it's certainly not produced in the magazines or anywhere else you can look around in our society. To set models of God-honoring women before you, both biblical and, I'll add, contemporary. There are, thank God, modern-day contemporary models of godliness, godly women. Some of them write, write well. And I would encourage you ladies to, as you've done in the past, some of the Bible studies, the book studies you've done, to to take these God-honoring women and set those before you. And I guarantee if you don't set someone like that before you, the world will set someone else before you. And it will emphasize all the wrong things. It will cause every measure of discontent and dissatisfaction that you can imagine. Because you know what the world's focusing on. Face, figure, and fashion. To be reminded that you're not alone. That we, as fellow heirs of grace, women among each other, to encourage one another in godliness and righteousness. You're not alone. God does keep a people for Himself. And so as we understand that it is God's order that makes these distinctives of, of role. Women, again, just encourage you. Set your hope in Him. Let this be the testimony of you, my one whose heart, whose hope was set, who hoped in God, whose heart was set toward God. And this is what it looks like. I'm motivated to this with this motivation, I want to please God. I want to live for the pleasure of God, bring pleasure to Him, and to adorn the the imperishable, the eternal, hidden person of the heart with a gentle and a quiet spirit. The chaste and respectful behavior be that which characterizes who I am and what I do. And I have set before me in my mind women who are godly women to be an example for me. Not the women of the world. It's a high calling. I guarantee, apart from the grace of God, nobody would adopt this. And apart from the grace of God, no one will live by it. Can't do it. But God says, this is it. This is my order. For you. May we see it as something that is powerful in a godly way. Powerful even with the potential of of bringing men and others into the kingdom of God as they observe the chaste and respectful behavior. And there is a beauty to that, isn't there? The beauty of a godly woman. It's not always the physical appearance. But there is something of a beauty of life that cannot be hidden. Let that be your pursuit. Let that be your goal. Let us pray. Heavenly Father,
I know the world could come in and Satan could come in and take and twist this teaching, and he has. So many times, so many ways. And we want to be biblically bound. Biblically sound and balanced. So I pray for the women of our church. Pray for the women of the church at large. Oh Lord, I pray for grace simply to take your word for what it says and to, to choose to live in obedience to you. But Lord, with that calling as a pastor and also as a husband, the responsibility is thrust upon us as great as well. Help us. Help the men of this church to be godly men who recognize that what our wives need is a sense of spiritual strength and stability. And knowing that it's not a matter of my will versus your will, but what is God's will? So Lord, help us. Help us to build godly homes. Lord, help that our, our wives can gladly honor the Word of God when they see the Word submission and they not cringe. But Lord, also the husbands consider with fear the calling that we have to love our wives as Christ has loved the church and He gave Himself. Lord, we want to be a holy, righteous people. And we want to be a holy and a righteous people where it matters the most. And that's in our homes. Forgive us for we failed you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.